This is the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, and this episode is the transformative power of technology. Welcome to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, brought to you by the KPMG Global Energy Institute. Current Conversations is a podcast series featuring in-depth conversations with the nation's top energy executives and luminaries to explore today's most pressing issues and emerging challenges affecting our industry. On September 2, 2020, Regina Mayer, KPMG Global and U.S. Head of Energy, connected with Quinton Neen, President, CEO, and Director of Tidewater. Mr. Neen, having had a long career in the energy industry, has seen numerous boom and bust cycles. He places unwavering faith in offshore services to thrive again by harnessing the power of technology and explains why the best companies are built during a downturn. Thank you for joining me today, Quentin. It's a pleasure to have you. You currently serve as the President, CEO, and Director of Tidewater, and Tidewater is the leading supplier of offshore support vessels worldwide with a fleet of over 200 vessels. Can you tell us more about your company? Thank you, and it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Tidewater has been providing services to the offshore businesses for over 65 years. We provide logistical services to offshore locations. Historically, and today, that is principally hydrocarbon energy facilities, but increasingly around the world, the focus is on offshore wind farms. We employ approximately 5,000 people from all over the world, and we are headquartered in Houston, Texas. All right, 5,000 people all over the world. So that makes it challenging in a COVID environment. And I know you were dealing with it in the very early stages of the pandemic. Um, I think I read somewhere that 90% of your fleet was working in 60 countries. So how did you manage the initial part of COVID, and then how did that response evolve? I will tell you it has been quite difficult. Um, Much of the response to the pandemic by governmental authorities has been to restrict the movement of people internationally. And moving people internationally around the world is key to our business. We're working in far fewer countries these days, but our footprint is still large, and it involves managing operations in a wide range of situations with varying local requirements and restrictions. Remaining uh, in close communication with our regional management teams has been critical as they have been on the front lines determining what options we have to safely and reliably move our folks to and from our vessels and our offices. Uh, Locations and local restrictions have dictated solutions for us. In some cases, we've had to charter flights. Uh, In other cases, we've used our vessels to transport crews in and out of countries where we're operating. In many cases, we've had to use our vessels for accommodating crew during their mandated quarantine period as they arrive for uh, crew changes. But it has been an immensely challenging uh, time for for offshore logistical operators. Well, I think I read that at one point you had a quarter of a million stranded seafarers. So how long did they have to stay out there? Were they able to come back? What have you had to do to ensure that you have the talent available in the right place at the right time? <laughs> well, that, that, that figure is, is worldwide for all ships, not just us. But, yes, yeah, so the last figure I've seen was still over 200,000 seafarers stranded across the shipping sector. You know, that's box ships. Wow. That's 
uh, cruise lines. That's our our business, which is what we refer to as OSVs. Um, it, it's it's tremendously difficult time for these people because they're on these vessels. They can't communicate directly with their families. You know, some of them have their pay reduced because they're not working full time on the boats. Uh, organizations like the International Chamber of Shipping, the International Maritime Organization, and the International Labor Organization have been working together, contacting governments, NGOs, trade unions, and all the other organizations to, to push for solutions to speed up the crew change process, including designating mariners as key workers. Enhanced communication is, is kind of the management tool we're using right now uh, to, to help alleviate uh, some of the uncertainty and the stress. I mean, it, it's critical to ensure that our crews around the world know what we're doing to try and get them home and to make sure that they remain safe and healthy physically and mentally uh, while they remain offshore. Yeah, I can't imagine what that extra set of challenges is. And you were at the early stages of, of dealing with it and with the additional challenge, right, of negotiating all the different territories where you had people deployed and and uh, vessels deployed, what are your biggest learnings from COVID and being on the front line of dealing with the pandemic that you could share with our listeners? Well, I would say that uh, one of the things that you, you have to be at this time is both resilient and decisive. You know, the world is changing quite Quickly. The regulations that impact our business are changing quite quickly. People's personal situations are changing quite quickly. So we have to be able to adjust quickly to the, the circumstances. And I think we also have to be resilient enough in our, in our character and in our, in our persona not to get overwhelmed by all of the change in the situation. I think, think uh, those are three key messages that I'm giving out to, to my employees, which is, one, uh, approach everything with a bit more grace than perhaps you have in the past, because everybody's under a lot of stress, and decisions that were relevant yesterday because of changing factors may not be relevant today, and, and, and roll with the change as best you can, but be decisive, and, and also, you know, watch out for your, your, your fellow mariners, their mental health, as well as their physical well-being. I mean, those are great lessons that we should deploy all over the place and avoid some of the screening tirades that we're seeing in uh, public places. Resilience, decisiveness, and grace. I, I'm definitely making a note of that, Quentin. Let's talk about the oil and gas industry because 2020 has been challenging for a lot of a lot of reasons. It's a major loss in fossil fuel demand coupled with the lack of supply constraint at the beginning of March that just sent crude prices through the floor. The good news is we've seen some rebound, um, you know, stability in WTI and Brent for the last six, seven weeks straight, but we're still well off our January crude price highs and, you know, rig counts and activity are, are still substantially down. What are you seeing in terms of how this situation is affecting the oil field services sector and, and how are you steering tidewater through these incredibly challenging times? Well, the, the offshore services sector and the oil and gas services sector broadly has been incredibly hard hit. If you think about it, we, we were just beginning to emerge from the last downturn that began about six years ago, 2000, end of 2014. 
as recent as the first quarter, we were anticipating steady improvement in demand for our services as, and through the rest of 2020. We were beginning to experience tightness in supply in some areas, and it was even starting to become difficult to recruit enough personnel to crew our vessels in a few areas. Well, that rapidly reversed as demand dramatically fell yeah. in the second quarter. Um, wow. I know, you know, a number of other companies have been operating in our sector with a substantial amount of debt through the last downturn. And the early signs of improvement in the market in 2020 provided some hope that many of these companies uh, you know, could avoid a reorganization. But unfortunately, this down cycle has obliterated that possibility. And, and it will drive a number of restructurings uh, in, in the offshore oil and gas services space as well as the oil and gas services space broadly. Uh, and so it's a challenging time, uh, but these restructurings are, are, are a natural part of the consequence of these types of uh, cyclical activities, and it will set the stage for more mergers and acquisitions, and that will result in market consolidation, and that should improve the overall balance of supply and demand. I hope so. We'll come back to consolidation. Um, but are there changes that you're making that would be permanent to your operating model, or is it more of kind of cutting where we can, surviving to then thrive again? You know, we've been a real early adopter on technology in our own business, even beginning as early as 2010. So leveraging technology so that our shore-based footprint is as light as possible and as flexible and as scalable as possible. Uh, and that's important both when you're growing and when you have to shrink in times like this. So, you know, I would say that we're uh, – of course, in more of a shrinking mode today, um, but we're, we're getting our, our regional managers and our leaders focused on creating a business that is sustainable in today's market. So if, if you create a business that is sustainable in uh, a down market, it's only enhanced profitability once you get to the, once you get to the bull market phases of right. our industry. Real, real focus on, on, on leveraging technology to do that. Can you give some examples? I'm really curious about the use cases where technology um, has, has helped improve the profitability. Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the things that we like to do is leverage our, our ERP system. So we are a user of SAP, and we adopted that back in 2010. But it wasn't just adopting the ERP system. It was making it user-friendly for all of our operators. Because we are in so many locations around the world, having something that is app-based iPad-based, so that people can go onto the vessels and still communicate, to do requisitions, do all the logging in that they need to do in order to, to you know, confirm receipt of goods and, and the like. All of that is real paper-intensive when you're an offshore vessel. You know, and a vessel that only gets the port every week or every other week, it's a really challenging situation to make sure all the paperwork is constantly flowing. And that paperwork creates its own administrivia that results in additional people being able to handle the paper. By going to a, an app-based, an iPad-based interaction with the vessels, it really cleans up a lot of the, the administration that, that's required onshore and allows us to centralize a bit more of the accounts receivable, the accounts payable, and the procurement processes. And that's, that's a big part of our logistical business. Right. No, those are great examples. And I'm impressed that you were able to create an app underpinning your ERP. I think that's very forward-thinking. I haven't seen 
a lot of agility oh. around some of the core ERP systems. Uh, it's great, and, and it's not just the, you know, we started with the ERP system because that was critical to us, and uh, but now we have a whole suite of apps, so anytime we have an employee benefits arrangement, whether it's a 401k plan or something similar to, uh, around the world, we have that provider's app in our, uh, in our suite of of applications that we give to our employees. So we have self-reporting for uh, employee changes of address or changes of certifications or all of those elements related to managing you know, all 5,000 of our employees. So everything we can do to make it easier for our mariners who are naturally remote. You know, we don't have large offices. We just have boats around the world. And these folks are on boats and we're leveraging technology to make their life just a little bit easier. And, and helps because it makes our lives a lot more efficient and scalable. That's terrific. And the fact that you started in 2010 as well shows the journey that you've been on because my observation through this pandemic is those companies that had been making substantial digital investments were much better able to pivot when the world changed in March. Absolutely. But back in 2010, we had to find a way to make our business more scalable. So we began to invest in technology and look for ways to manage a workforce of up to 5,000 people that was efficient. Uh, we are in a very competitive business, and the ability to be as efficient as possible is key to being as profitable as possible. When the pandemic hit in the spring of this year, it was natural for us to go remote. We weren't really sure how it was going to work out. In fact, I've been quite pleased. You know, we've been through several uh, financial closes at this point, and uh, everybody's performed really well. The system has really held up nicely. And so I'm actually rethinking what type of shore-based footprint we need today because of the ability to leverage technology even onshore. That is one of the key um lessons learned coming out of COVID is perhaps rethinking physical space completely. But let's talk about the oil field services sector, which is, is no stranger to boom and bust cycles. And Tidewater has a rich, rich history and has seen many, you know, boom and bust cycles, even a hostile takeover attempt during the crash in the early 80s. And you've been in the, the sector and the industry for quite a while as well, Quentin. So what is your view of this cycle? Is it truly different or unprecedented, or would you say it's, it's another cycle and we've been here before? Every cycle is different. Um, you have to get to the heart of the problem to understand what is driving the imbalance of supply and demand and what factors will result in that imbalance tightening. This is a more difficult cycle because it involves a substantial amount of oversupply of vessels. And vessels are, by their nature, long-lived assets that don't go away just because a company goes bankrupt. Those vessels are still out there and they're still competing against you. And so it's it's been made worse uh, by the excess supply of terrestrial-based sources of hydrocarbons. And uh, and these two factors make for kind of a whipsawing uh, for service providers, especially offshore service providers. Um, it's, you know, but every cycle is different. And you have to look through the those, those factors, both on the supply side and the demand side, to figure out how you're going to navigate your way through the remainder of the cycle. 
this cycle on the offshore side really started in 2014. It began to recover at the end of 2019, early 2020, and then we got hit with the pandemic. So we got to a point uh, in late 2019 where the supply and demand imbalance had tightened enough where people were starting to be able to improve their day rates. And back to uh, we're actually running out of mariners globally, and we're starting to see cost pressure uh, in order to get more mariners. So this this recent pullback has been a pullback of about 25% in activity, and my indications are that we'll probably need another year to year and a half to cleanse through the remaining oversupply, uh, and then we'll be back in balance again and begin to get to grow our profitability as we go forward from there. But, uh, but it, it definitely always feels like the worst cycle when you're in it. And this has definitely been a very difficult cycle. But every cycle is different. This one uh, started with being a oversupply of the vessels and, and really got uh, hit hard by the demand decrease as a result of the pandemic. Well, very wise so that we don't feel like it's necessarily the end of the world because we, we have been through these cycles before. And, and like you said, every cycle is different. So. Tidewater also has a rich history of acquisitions over decades, and I, uh, I believe you came in to the organization through the acquisition of Gulfmark. So you must have seen a lot of these acquisitions, uh, and as we con consider potential consolidation in the sector and the industry as a whole, what have you learned are keys to success as you acquire companies and integrate them? Well, I did come through the, the acquisition of Gulfmark back in 2018, and, and we certainly uh, have been a part of acquisitions even before then. Deciding what you want the company culture to be following a merger or acquisition is very critical. Ideally, when you complete an acquisition, you're not only acquiring equipment, but, but also talent. And it's important to take the best of both organizations, the best talent, the best systems, the best locations and equipment. And this may also drive changes in the company culture, hopefully for the best, but generally uh, it's, it's, it's a big focus as you go through that integration process, creating uh, a culture that is better than the, the two companies individually. Uh, ensuring that that is done well is, is, is key for the management team, and it's key to being able to make your acquisition successful and, and value creative. So to, to that end, what what is how would you describe the culture of Tidewater now with the integration of Gulfmark and are there unique aspects about the company as a result of its rich history of acquisitions? You know, I would say that the company today is a lot more nimble than it was five years ago. And, and part of it is because it had to be, because we had to make changes, and, and we had to adjust our business model to reflect what was a shrinking offshore sector even in the 2014 to 2020 timeframe. And that nimbleness that we were able to uh, achieve helped us during the pandemic period as well, because we were in this process of constantly reevaluating and challenging our processes and the markets that we're in. And when the pandemic came, it was a natural extension of that type of behavior to evaluate, okay, how are we going to make this business profitable even in this period where the world is, again, throwing us a curveball? So I would say that the, the company and the culture is a lot more nimble than it was prior to the Gulf 
benchmark acquisition. And I would say that the leveraging of technology has become much more significant as well. And those are two keys to success. So great that you started working on that, you know, pre-pandemic. So one other thing that I often get asked is the difference between onshore and offshore. And a lot of folks continue to try to predict the, the quote, death of U.S. shale, unquote. You know, what is your view regarding the attractiveness of onshore versus offshore, being an offshore services provider? Is one more resilient than the other? They are different markets. Typically, prior to 2008, the onshore and offshore market moved generally together uh, with, the, with the global demand uh, for oil. Uh, however, that broke when the shale revolution began to take hold in 2008. Um, shale is a, is a short cycle uh, investment opportunity in hydrocarbons, and it was very attractive over the past five to seven years. And what we're starting to see is perhaps the returns on, on the shale aren't what investors were requiring. And so we're seeing a, a focus now back on offshore. Offshore fields are generally much larger. They take a lot more upfront capital in order to be uh, in order to begin production uh, compared to the shale side, but they provide a lower cost over a much longer period of time. So what we may see as we begin the 2022 2025 chapter in the in the oil and gas industry is a new focus on those larger offshore fields, uh, as, and, uh, and that, of course, would benefit time for. Yeah, I had um, one of the CEOs and one of the larger drillers on my program at the beginning, and he made an impassioned case that offshore was more resilient because of the backlog that, um, that typically is in place, for the rigs at least, and the long lead times, you know, the bigger investment requires more continuity of investment. And it was, a, it was a pretty interesting argument. I've also had the opposite set up my program with onshore services providers arguing the other way. But we, we hope that both sides stay resilient and we get out of the oversupply situation that we're, we're in. And, and so to that point, rig counts have finally inched up uh, after 23 straight weeks of decline. Are you seeing a rebound in activity yet? We haven't seen a rebound in activity just yet, but that's natural. It'll take a little bit of time before the increase in rig activity shows up in a substantial increase in the vessel activity. But some of the projects that were canceled in the spring have uh, have risen again with, in discussions with our our friends at the E&P companies, and my outlook is a little bit more optimistic than it was earlier in the summer. I, I'm starting to see these projects come back to life, and we may see some activity levels increases in the, in the first couple of quarters of 2021. That's great to hear, Quentin. And so what do you see as the future? I mean, I loved how in the early at the start of our discussion, you talked about offshore wind uh, as an opportunity for your vessels. Are you diversifying in any other areas, and, and how do you see this, the future sort of beyond 2021? You know, a big discussion in our industry is when is peak oil demand? Yeah, you know, we, you know, it, it seemed like 
it was only 12 years ago when we were talking about peak oil supply, and now we're talking about peak oil demand in that 2030 to 2035 period. It, it, it remains to be seen what will happen with the offshore hydrocarbon energy supply curve. But there is a renewed focus from all of the countries around the world on developing a sustainable energy platform as a part of the, their overall energy complement. And, uh, you know, we're excited about the opportunity to serve into those markets. There's not too many other opportunities offshore other than the energy-related assets. So typically it's been the hydrocarbon-based assets, but what we're seeing and what we've seen really since 2010 is a proliferation of offshore wind, principally in northern Europe. But we're beginning to see it in Asia. We're beginning to see it in other areas of South America. I expect that we're going to begin to see it here in the U.S. as well. So it's a very exciting time for the offshore energy space. And our vessels will complement uh, the, the renewables focus as much as it complements the, the, the hydrocarbon focus. I, I have colleagues that are incredibly bullish on the future of offshore wind. So uh, keep focusing on that, on that segment. One, one other thing um, is, you know, the opportunity, if, if we focus on the fossil fuels and the hydrocarbon value chain, there's so much opportunity for the upstream industry to better connect between the operators and the service providers. I just see that as such a gap that um, we're not flanged together at the hip in the way that we could be to create more win-win-win types of scenarios. Do you have ideas or suggestions on what you would like to, to see the industry do to work together more effectively? Absolutely. I mean, I think the best thing that we can do is leverage technology more than we ever have. You know, when I think of other shipping logistical channels, I see an extensive use of technology. Uh, if you've ever had the pleasure of visiting a port facility, you'll see these giant box ships coming in and, and, and automatically sorting all of these boxes into their eventual destinations. And, and the, the, the use of technology in order to coordinate that logistics is, 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 is amazing to me. We're nowhere near that in the offshore space. And when you get more efficient in the delivery of, of, of offshore logistical products and offshore logistical services, you reduce the number of vessels that are necessary, you reduce the overall cost in the industry, you reduce the carbon footprint in the industry. Using technology and working together to create a better and more efficient market for the delivery of offshore product and services will be key. Uh, and I, I firmly believe that using technology to coordinate amongst ourselves is going to be the avenue that gets us there. So speaking of the shipping infrastructure as you look at serving different basins. Do the operators, the upstream companies, share the, the vessels amongst the platforms? Can you deliver back and forth um, between them? Not today. I mean, there are certainly isolated instances where that does happen, but unfortunately there's not enough coordination throughout the logistical offshore oil field uh, to enable that today. And that's why I believe that using technology to help coordinate the logistical movement of products and services is going to be key to creating a more efficient, safer offshore environment. And, uh, you know, we look forward to leading people through that challenge. Uh, our our policy has been to embrace technology for the past 10 years, and we'll look for opportunities to embrace it again in enhancing the offshore logistical channel. Definitely seems like an opportunity there. So 
I know these are tough times, but they won't last forever. So what positive message or closing remarks would you leave with our energy industry listeners? The energy industry has been through many challenging transitions and periods. The best companies and the best organizations are built during the downturn. Everyone likes to talk about the boom times, but what makes companies truly great is how they reorganize and rebuild themselves during the downturn. It's the actions that we are taking today that set great companies up for superior returns in the future. And you are definitely doing that by sizing yourself to be profitable in this environment. So I applaud your efforts. And my big takeaway to summarize was your earlier point about being resilient, decisive, and having grace. So thank you again for joining me, Quentin. It has been a pleasure to have you, and you've been really inspiring and uplifting. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast episode on the transformative power of technology. A transcript of this episode is now available on the KPMG Global Energy Institute at www.kpmgglobalenergyinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast to be notified of new episodes.